You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If I had a songwriting class, I would say write a great song and you have 45 words. That's, you, can, you can have 45 syllables. Now write an amazing number based on that. Because then all of a sudden, everything has to be very specific. You have to choose every word. It becomes very hard. Every word has to be chosen specifically. And you can't just throw phrases at something. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. You're listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, KenDavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's KenDavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. That's always look on the bright side of life from the big Broadway musical Spam a Lot, which today's guest, Mr. Glenn Kelly, helped to musically arrange. Today on the podcast, Glenn's going to tell you about how to assemble a big Broadway score like Spam a Lot. But before we get there, I want to once again thank Terry Knickerbocker Studio for sponsoring this podcast. Terry Knickerbocker Studio offers a two year acting conservatory, but also workshops, studio rentals, one on one coaching, everything you need to get the best actor training for the Broadway stage, for sure. Conservatory is based in the Meisner technique, but they offer a holistic approach to actor training with a commitment to nurturing the total actor, mind, body, and soul. And this is, by the way, this is the man, Terry Knickerbocker is the guy who Oscar winner Sam Rockwell has trusted to coach him through every single film, TV, and theater project he's ever worked on over the course of his career, even referring to Terry as his secret weapon, and that's right, podcast listeners. If you're an actor, you get a chance to work with Terry when you visit terryknickerbockerstudio.com. That's terryknickerbockerstudio.com or just Google Terry Knickerbocker. But 
before you do that, let's let you in on the secrets to creating a big Broadway smash score with Glenn Kelly on today's podcast. But here's a little bit more of one of those scores. Well, what a stroke of luck. I'll take it off your hands. Hey, the lady Patsy. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective Podcast. My name is Ken Davenport. You are in for a very fun and educational podcast today. Uh, we're going to talk to someone who is extremely well-known in the business, but also a bit of a mystery, and we're going to solve it or attempt to. Please welcome to the podcast, Mr. Glenn Kelly. Welcome, Glenn. Hi, Ken. By the way, whenever I hear the title of your show, I always think it's going to be about the musical, The Producers, like just a podcast only about the producers, how well, it came to be. You could you know. be, I mean, that's what this episode is. You could actually I tell could do the that. whole story. Uh, well, look, if you go to Glenn's IBDB page, you will see that he has worked on the producers very intimately, which we're going to talk about, but also that he's worked on a ton of different shows. But what's very unique about Glenn, he's got a ton of different titles for his credits, from dance music arrangements to musical supervision to incidental music. He really does it all on shows like, again, The Producers, Drowsy Chaperone, Christmas Story, Spamalot, and a ton more. I like to refer to Glenn as the score whisperer because of his ability to take a score and blow it up into some big Broadway hits, those big Broadway scores that we all know and love. In fact, one of the reasons that led to this podcast today is I was talking to him about a show of mine that he's working on, and when we talked about it, I said to him, what do you do? What do you want to do? And I'm going to let him explain that to you right now. What did you say to me when I said, what would you like to do on this show? Do you remember? I don't. What did I say? You said musical dramaturgy. To which oh, that's good. I said that. That was, a, I'm, I'm smart. Yes. What a great, and yeah. I said, I've never heard that before. Mm -hmm. And so tell me a little bit about what you think that is and why it's necessary. Uh, okay. I mean, what I do, my family's never figured it out. No one in my family has any idea what I do. And they, you know, it's, it is weird to explain because people assume that, like, the composer will write everything. And he does, but I will decide the direction a song moves in. I'll, you know, along with the director and choreographer, of course, but I'll come up with, we need a key change here. This part of the song should be over here. What if we had a section in the middle where people came out and did something like this? And you create a whole, I mean, the song should sort of act like a one-act play. That's something Sondheim always says about his songs. But as far as the action within a song, that's often the case, too. So, like in the producers, there are a lot of songs where there's a lot of events. If you look at I want to be a producer. There's a whole opening section where everyone sings unhappy, unhappy, and then there's a scene. Then it goes into I want to be a producer, and there's a section in the middle where the chorus girls come out. So it's mapping all that out, um, you know. And of course, you know, with you know, with producers, obviously Mel is on top of it, and Stroman is on top of it. But th but that's my goal. If that, gee, I don't know how helpful that is. <laughs> Very helpful. I always we're, wonder how helpful I am. We're going to dig into it All in right. detail. So, But let's go back to the beginning. So where did you learn this skill or really where did you start? I don't know business? if I learned a skill. It's more like just kind of like being a smart ass at the piano. The ability to sit down and make people laugh. You know, um, I never had any musical training. I'm completely like... Uh, raw. What does that as mean? As, no musical training. So that means I taught myself no, no piano lessons, and I taught myself theory and how to write music and stuff. Write it down, I should say. Wait, you did not take a piano. I didn't. Lesson. I did not. Never had a piano. So lesson. when did you start plunking away at the keys? I, 
It's so interesting how, as kids, we're hardwired as human beings to be attracted to certain things. And I was just loved a piano, in the words of Irving Berlin. And I was just always attracted to a keyboard. My aunt in San Bernardino, California, had a piano, and I would just want to go and play, play on the piano as a child and make up you know, little pieces of music. And for some reason, that was always attractive to me. And um, I had clarinet at school, in elementary school, so I kind of learned kind of how music worked. But I was just really into like the piano and stuff, so I kind of learned fake music. Fake music is where you have a melody line and just a chord that talks about the harmony. So when you're reading from a fake chart, you have to arrange, because all you have is the, you know, you have to figure out how to, how to make it musical sounding. So that's sort of how it came about. How uh, old were you when you started to fake? Some would say I've never actually stopped that, mm. but um, I don't know, 10, 11, I guess. 10 or 11. Did you come I think. from a musical family? No, no. Uh, I would say I was adopted, but I look exactly like everyone in my family. I, you know, I like to think I was a musical royalty that somehow ended up. No, there's no, there's no way around it. I look just like my dad and my brothers. So. So you started faking, and how did that lead you to the theater? Again, it's just odd. Uh, it's strange the things you remember. When I was sixth grade, and the high school came to do selections from their production of. No, I'm sorry, take that back. It was eighth grade. And the high school came over to do uh, excerpts from the Fantastics, which they were doing. And I was just immediately smitten with it. It was just seemed so fun and amazing, you know, like from that moment. And, you know, in high school, I remember that here's what worked for me. Here's something everyone should do. My drama teacher, Maggie Rigolato, lovely lady, and um, she loved Mana La Mancha. She was always going on about Mana La Mancha. So I thought, okay. So I went to the library, got the record, and got the script. And every time a song would come out, I would put the needle on the record. And by the end, I was sobbing, you know, because it's so sad at the end. And somehow that, that played in my head. I saw everything in that, you know. And to this day, it's really fun if you get a script of a show to go through and play the songs when they come up. You really get an idea of the show. Anyway, I loved it. I loved that so much. And literally, I was just a sobbing little mess at the end. So... I mean, that's kind of how I got into theater, and I eventually taught myself to read regular piano music, so I started playing for the musicals at high school. You know, so in a weird way, when I see high school friends, I'm doing the same thing I was doing in high school. They've moved on to careers. I'm still playing piano for musicals. But you literally just taught yourself yeah. how to go from faking to actually reading, but no instruction at all. Yeah, it was hard to go from uh, treble clef in the right hand and bass clef in the and that was always hard for me, but you get used to it, and you kind of figure it out. I would write little, I would write music at home, usually like Mozart pastiches, because I love Mozart. So I would write. I don't know, they don't still exist. I'm sure they were quite crude, but I mean that helped me learn to read piano music because I would try to write piano music. So. How many hours a day did you play the piano? Um, I didn't get a piano in the house till I was maybe 13, but then just kind of like. Gee, I don't know, like as much as I could. I really loved playing and writing little pieces of music and learning music for them. You know, I mean, it was just always something I liked and I felt like I was good at. Where was this piano that you were playing before you got one in the house? At your aunt's, did you say? Uh, well, that wasn't close by. Um, uh, there was pianos at, there was a college where I could like sneak into the practice room and use that piano. We actually had a toy piano at home which had like a four octave range. So it's not like a Schroeder piano. But it's like enough that you can actually kind of play music on it. And I played on that all the time. 
I, I stole it from my sister, who it was actually given to. And, yeah, I just, mm-hmm. And after high school, what did you go on to do? What was the goal? Did you, like, I'm going to pursue a career in the theater and one day score oh, it was a whisper all, to it was a little, shows? It was a little odd. I never, I, went, I never finished high school. Never went to college. You didn't graduate from high school. I did not. There were some family problems, which I won't burden you with. And I left home, like, when I was 17, before I graduated high school, moved in with a, a friend of mine. I was playing for the Civic Light Opera Company, so I made a little money there. There was a, a singer I was playing for, and her parents gave me some money, too. And I was just kind of surviving that way. Where was this again? Uh, L.A. L.A. Mm-hmm. And then I, uh, through uh, somebody I knew, I got a job playing for a musical called Boy Meets Boy, um, which was an off-Broadway show by Bill Solly. And so that was actually, a, I got $100 a week for that, which was, you know, probably $5,000 a week in today's dollars at least. And um, so I got, I got that job, and that was an actual professional job. It opened on my 19th birthday. Wow. So... Someone should, you're a producer. Uh, that's a really good show you should look at. Really? Yeah, because it's about, it's a 30s musical, but con- the conceit of the 30s musical is that men can get married to each other, hmm. which is weirdly contemporary, but it was written like, well, I was 19, so like 40 years ago, 30 years ago. So that was that, and I got to know the composer. Then there was a show called The Great American Backstage Musical, which was quite good, and I, that it was in LA, and it moved to San Francisco. Then I went with it to San Francisco, and it closed, and I played for a lady named Sharon McKnight, who you may have heard of. She was nominated later on for a Starmites. I played for her for three years, and then I moved to New York. Three years? Just accompanying her? Yes. I was also working on, there's a show, Beach Blanket Babylon. Oh, yeah. That's which, big. And, I worked on, and I worked on that for a while. Listen... I worked on that when I was like 20, and it had been running three or four years at that point, and it's closing uh, this year. That's how long that show's been running. So no musical training. No. No college program. So you really cut your teeth or learn this skill you talk about, like moving things around and how to get an audience laugh. Of all those shows, which one do you think helped you the most in learning that skill? You know what really helped me was working with Sharon McKnight, who was a comedian, and you're coming up with material for her, and you get a song, and it's like, 32-bar song, okay, how, you, how can you make this a piece? You can't just sing the song through once, you know? And when you're, I mean, I really learned more than anything from like doing, I hate to say it, from like doing Piano Bar, which I did when I moved here, playing at the old duplex, and Don't Tell Mama, like a long time ago. And um, when you just have to sit down and play piano for like four hours, five hours, and be funny, and you know, accompany various people who come up and just, you know, I mean, you learn more from that than anything. Not to mention, you learn a lot of songs. And, um, and, and doing people's nightclubs. You know, I think I learned more from that than anything. What is your favorite score of all in the musical theater canon? God, my go-to answer is West Side Story, because I think it's so wonderful. But I don't know, I mean... I don't know that that's better than Sweeney Todd, which I think is pretty perfect. You work on a lot of comedies, though. I was I'm surprised to hear that you like two of the more I don't, I don't, serious musicals. Do you listen to cast albums? Yeah. You do? I, I kind of don't that much. I listen to a lot of opera and classical music, but I don't often for enjoyment, you know, like put on, um, you know, little, little Abner or something. I, I, I don't generally do that for some reason. 
I like working on it, and I feel like I'm pretty good at it, but I don't, you know, much, very often do that. So describe your process a little bit about working, and why don't we just use the producers as an example, since that's one of the most famous, mm-hmm. uh, where you worked really closely with Mel, who also isn't a yeah. composer, really, right? Mm-hmm. He hums a lot from what I've heard, or so it goes, or yeah. sang into a recorder. I, I, I mean, I would harmonize the songs he was singing. I have to say it's not that hard, because they're very... They're parodistic songs. They're based on styles of songs, you know. So those kind of songs aren't hard to harmonize, you know. Um, but yeah, he would he would sing stuff to me, and I would make suggestions, and we go back and forth. And the the product was was you know a song by Mel Brooks, absolutely. But I, I feel like I was able to influence it and stuff. And um, yeah, I mean Mel was amazing. I, I I really wish I'd enjoyed it more. I was always nervous. I was afraid I was going to be fired, and I was you know, uh, looking back on it, I should have just stepped back a minute and, and just looked at how amazing it was to like hang out with Mel Brooks, and Anne Bancroft, and have dinner with them and Stroman and uh, Tommy and and Carolyn Me, and that was great. And I was always kind of nervous and paranoid, and like you know, but that was a great experience. Was there? Talk a little bit about the development of that show. Was it always like, oh, this thing is this thing is amazing. This is going to work like Never. Everyone is like, oh, well, the producers. No one knew it was going to be ahead. No one was sure. You know, Mel was always, I always felt like he was on the point of going, ah, oh, forget it. Um, and it was a little tragic in the beginning because Mike Ockrent was going to direct it. Actually, what happened was originally uh, David Geffen was the producer. He wanted Jerry Zaks to direct. Jerry Zaks, he, he was more with the authors. He was more like, we'll, we'll write something and show it to me. And the authors were like, we need someone to help us. And so Tom Meehan thought, you know what would be really good for that is uh, Mike Ockrent. Because he's done more shows from scratch than Jerry. So they went to Mike Ockrent, and that was kind of love at first sight. Mike at, the, at that time was married to Susan Stroman. And um, so I was actually... I was playing rehearsals for a show. No one remembers. It's uh, Christmas Carol that used to be at Madison Square Garden. Oh, I remember. Do you remember that? Flaherty. You would, yeah. No, no. Uh, uh, Alan Menken and and Lynn Oh, Lynn, sorry. And yeah. Lynn, mm-hmm. Right. The one she cheated on Stephen for that. One. She did. She's amazing. And Alan Menken is astonishing too. But I was working on that at like the fourth year. Roger Daltrey, of all people in the world, was was Scrooge. So we had Roger Daltrey at rehearsal, which was. I was a huge fan of the Who, so I was like a gog. But at any rate, at one point, it was announced, oh, Mel Brooks is coming in. And I was like, why is, why is Mel Brooks? And uh, Mike said, oh, we're thinking of doing a musical uh, of the producers. And I was just flipped out. I have to do it. I have to do it. And um, so I met Mel, and we just kind of started working. During this time, though, Mike was in and out of the hospital. He had leukemia, and he was fighting it. And um, he, did, he did eventually die from it, which is really horrible, kind of right when we were developing it. And it was difficult and horrible for everybody. And at that point, Susan Stroman stepped in and directed as well. So we just kept developing it. But it was, but, but I think there was a lot of people... I know uh, David Geffen, when he was producing it, he thought um, he wanted Jerry Herman to write it. And Jerry Herman was like, oh, you're Mel, you're a great songwriter, you should do it. But David Geffen sort of thought, well, there should just be a few songs. There shouldn't be like a whole score, you know. You obviously had different, different opinions. Well, yeah, I mean, it worked out well, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
it was just fun to make it a full score. And, and Mel was really enthusiastic, had great ideas, and was just bursting with these songs. You know, it was quite, it was, it was quite wonderful, and I think it worked out extremely well to really do it like the ultimate tra traditional musical. At the same time, it's almost a parody of a traditional musical. You know, it's making fun of the thing. It, it, it's making fun of the thing it is, which is something that that Mel Brooks especially likes. So, well, he does a western that it's a western, but it's also making fun of itself that it's a western. And I think the goal was sort of like this had to be the musical according to Mel Brooks. It had to be his world. It had to be. It had. To, it had. To, the show had to look like Mel did the set and the costumes and all the dialogue and the music and the, you know, it just had to. The smartest thing I ever heard was by Howard Ashman, who said every musical has to be the something musical. Like, you know, it has to be one thing, like the Western musical or the Dickens musical. It has to be like a personality, one thing. In the same way, hopefully, National Lampoon Vacation would be that one thing, the National Lampoon Vacation, just that world. And this had to be the Mo Brooks musical. It had to be that specific a thing. And so, this, you know, we're breaking the fourth wall all the time, and the songs are, you know, they, so they sound like, uh, you know, they sound like, you know, the songs in Mel Brooks movies, kind of, you know, a Borscht Belt guy just singing these songs, except now it's all these characters singing them and stuff. So that was the goal of that. How can you make this one thing, just one specific thing? Do you think we'll see a Blazing Saddles musical? Gee, of? I don't know. How, that would be wonderful. You know, I haven't talked to Mel in a, in a couple of years. I saw him, he did a one-man show on Broadway, and I saw him at that. You know, Mel Brooks is, 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 you know, not a young man. Although when you meet him, he's like, you know, I assume he'll, I assume he'll live another 95 years. It's hard to assume anything else. His follow-up, Young Frankenstein, did not have, obviously, the same response that the producers did, not that any show could. It's a high bar to jump over. Mm -hmm. But what are some of the reasons you think that one didn't take off like the producers did? Well, one thing I always say, be beware the sure thing. Because producers was not a sure thing. A lot of people were, were like, oh, Mel's writing the score? And it was like, oh, well, you know. And, you know, it was, it was great. And so once that was a huge hit, it was like, well, we have to follow up with an equally big hit. And I think there was too much attention to making it a big smash. Uh, I think if it was a mid-sized musical, I think if it was shorter, if it was like in a smaller house, we were at uh, the um, where Harry Potter is now. I, I forget what it was called then. It was the Ford Center, I think. Or it was after the, it was called the. It's been a, a million names. Some corporate. Sponsor I can't remember. Maybe it was. Something. Might have been there. Oh God, maybe it was, maybe it was the Hilton. That sounds right. I can't remember, but you know that's a very problematic house to do a show in. So it was too big and. You know, I mean, it's it's hard to be big and be funny. You know, it's hard to be a massively big show and be funny, too. I'm sure there's a great example that proves me wrong. No, I think, but, you're, I think you're so right there because the, the funniest I can think of are the producers. Yeah. Spam a lot, which you were also involved in, and Book of Mormon, which is those aren't a small but the, musical. Those, right? those last two aren't really big musicals per right. se. Spamalot was in a mid-sized house. Producers was a, was a big musical. But it was a big musical about big musicals, so I, so that seemed appropriate. Young Frankenstein's not so much, you know. Uh, fr and by the way, recently uh, we've looked at Young Frankenstein again, and there was a new production in London, which was way cut down, and it didn't run as long as I wanted. But it got rave reviews, which we never got in New York. So I'm hoping people start doing that version because 
it was all of a sudden it was just easier to see how, how good a lot of the material is and stuff. So the London production made me very hopeful because I think there's a lot of terrific things in the show, but it didn't quite catch on. And it did okay business for a while, and then the, there was the economic, economic downturn happened, and everyone got scared. We closed, Little Mermaid closed. A lot of shows that were doing kind of okay got scared and closed all about the same time. What do you think about the current state of musical theater scores when you go to see all the new shows and the new writers? My complaint is that I've worried that there's a lot of scores that have the exact same amount of lyrics per square inch. In other words, a song will start and it's wordy and then it's wordy in the middle then it's wordy towards the end. I worry that no one knows how to write simply anymore. That, that's my main complaint, actually. Like every... Like, if, if you could time it, every, every minute has, like, you know, 145 words, and the next minute has 145 words. There's never a moment of expansion. It just seems a little dense to me. But there's a lot of great scores on. Hamilton's just the best damn thing ever, and so is Evan Hansen. And those Evan Hansen boys are adorable and sweet and as talented as uh, Pascal and Paul, as talented as they can be. And I did a, a Christmas story with them. Well, they just wrote this sensational musical comedy score, and now they've turned their back on it. And, you know, now they're, like, so wealthy, I'm sure I just can't even, you know. But they're, they're great. But do you know what I mean, though? I mean, it's sort of like, I was talking to someone, we were talking about Sondheim, and it's sort of like Sondheim created, created a very dense, verbal style of songwriting, but he's the only one talented enough to make that work. Other people, it just seems a little wordy all the time. I say that all the time to people, that so many young writers, I think, like love, revere Sondheim as they should, and then try to write like him. Mm -hmm. it's, that's like trying to write like Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. you know, he is, I think, the Shakespeare of musical theater, and few should try to touch that form. If I had a songwriting class, I would say, write a great song, and you have 45 words. That's, you, can, you can have 45 syllables. Now write an amazing number based on that. Because then all of a sudden, everything has to be very specific. You have to choose every word. It becomes very hard. Every word has to be chosen specifically, and you can't just throw fra phrases at something. For a new songwriter or an emerging songwriter, if you were teaching this class, yeah. and you only had one book of someone's lyrics to give them, oh God, or one cast album score to give them, whatever, who would that composer or lyricist team be? Good question. I always admire Irving Berlin's ability to write simply. When you look at a song like always which is insanely simple but it's perfect you can't change a syllable you know a lot of the Rogers and Hart songs like a lot of times now with shows that I do the, the lyrics are being rewritten to the end the sort of feeling that we've never found the final version of these lyrics you know and even after they open it's like oh we rewrote such and such if you look at a lot of Rogers and Hart songs the songs are perfect you, you could never go back and rewrite them you know every every word is perfectly chosen what do you think the biggest quote-unquote mistake is that new writers make? When Keep in mind, I've never actually written anything, so I mean, this is going to seem irritating to everyone who's actually writing shows. What's the first uh, thing you fix? What's the most common thing you adjust? You look at a score, you get mm -hmm. something. What are you like, oh, here it goes again, that thing? Uh, well, I like to add space. I think sometimes it's hard to know that an audience can really only take in so much. So you add space just to give an audience a chance to breathe yeah. for a moment or yeah. laugh. Or, mm -hmm. I, I recently heard that there is a director that directed comedies of film 
asking the actors to hold for a moment mm-hmm. because he knew where the laughs would be. Right. In mm-hmm. a way, that's the same thing you're talking about is giving the audience a chance to process. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the current... How many? Let me ask you that a different way. When you first started working on Broadway, how many musicians were there in the pit on average? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, I don't feel like it was massively different than it is now. I guess it must be. I'm sure it's smaller now. But back then, there were some pretty anemic orchestras, too. We're talking about the 80s. When I moved to New York, there was a certain kind of flop that doesn't happen so much now, where a show would just, against all reason, just show up on Broadway. It was just like, how did this get here? And it would open. It'd be like, the, the, I'm talking about shows like, when did you start watching shows? I feel like you're a little kid, by the way. You look so young, and you're very youthful for a producer. Uh, I got here in 1991. Well, okay. So, so the flops that I saw that were like those were like Metropolis. That oh, thing I, that came I, in. I saw that in I saw that in London. That didn't last very long. No, it did not. By the guy. Wasn't the by that was by the guy that wrote? Uh, is it in your life or the guy that wrote? You light up my life. Uh, Joe Brooks, didn't he write Metropolis? Am I wrong about that? I don't know. He also wrote the Lemonade musical or what, In My Life. That's what I meant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was in 2000. I think he wrote Metropolis. And then he went through some very hard times, and I I think he committed suicide. So on that happy note, but when I came to... I came to Broadway in the 80s at a time in which it didn't look like... Broadway would necessarily be a thing coming up. It wasn't at all like now when it's just to find a theater that's not full of, you know, I, I mean, it's it's amazing now. This is an amazing time where it's just like, there's just so much product. It's really exciting. In the 80s was kind of when they gave away the um, Mark Hallinger Theater because it was just like, you know, I think the last show that played there was um, Legs Diamond. And at that point, it was just like, everything was so disheartening. When, when I came to New York, there were shows like Bring Back Birdie, Onward uh, Victoria, Copperfield, Raggedy Ann and Andy. And these are huge, expensive shows that just came in and just fell apart, like immediately. And this was happening all the time. I remember seeing Big River, and it was like the last show of the season, and people were like, well, I guess there's not going to be a hit this season. And it turned out to be great. But everything they became for it just was terrible. There was, there were years where they didn't give original score out because there was just no, you know, I mean, it was just a bad time. Now it's exciting, at least. I, I, I can't say that it's like the golden age of Broadway musicals, but there's a lot of stuff, and there's a lot of great things on Broadway. You said before that, oh, people aren't going to hear this for me. I'm not a writer. I haven't really written anything. How well, come? Like a, How come you're not written? You know I'm how- not sure I'm... I'm not terrific with a blank page. The real heroes are people that create something out of nothing. I'm sort of like a backseat driver. I'm like, yeah, well, that's a good song. You know, you could move this over here and it would be, you know. But the real heroes are people who can look at something blank and put something on there and then resist criticism from people that go, oh, you know, why do you do that? And I'm not sure I have that much courage and I'm not sure I, you know, I... I have written stuff. I, I wrote the I wrote original music for the Nats, which, you know. But it, it is sort of important to realize that an arranger, and I think I'm good at what I do, but it's not the kind of talent that, that you know, a real-life songwriter has when he goes and sits down and creates a show. That's a whole different kind of talent and courage. 
that, I don't know, I'm a little shy. I'm not good at getting criticism, and I feel like I would just fold like a deck of cards the first time someone said, oh, I don't like that song. So, I don't know. Have you worked on any jukebox musicals? I don't think so. Well, no, I take it back. I did Bullets Over Broadway, which I guess you could technically call that. Although it doesn't feel like that for some reason. Uh, gee, that wasn't that was that didn't do well. No, why not? Um, everyone was wrong. Yeah, <laughs> no, I don't know. Everyone really was because I remember like sitting it? down with those producers. Well, everyone, that was. Oh, who did you sit down? Who did you sit down with? I don't. Julian. Yes. Nice. Early. Julian Schlossberg, nicest. Yes. The, the most wonderful mensch in uh, Broadway theater. He's and a I did lovely it guy. When it was announced, saying like, "I gotta get in on this show." It's got Broadway in the title. It's got Woody Allen. Of course, that reputation has changed over the years, but it just had all the making. Susan Stroman involved. It had mm-hmm. all the makings of a big hit, and then it just didn't get there. It might have been too big. Again, I mean, it was a comedy, and it, and it was an immense production at the St. James. St. James. Again. And um, well, the Woody Allen thing sure didn't help. That story was just breaking. It was well. Everyone had gotten used. Rebroke. Everyone, yeah. It was weird because everyone had kind of made peace with it, and Woody Allen was receiving a big award, and uh, Ronan Farrell posted something to the effect of, "Gee, they didn't didn't mention at the award ceremony my father molesting um, my sister," and that became a very big thing. And all, all of a sudden, you know everything came out again and it was like all of a sudden it wasn't much fun to be a Woody Allen musical which at the time it was I was like oh my god how much are people going to want to see a big Woody Allen musical it was like the big Mel Brooks musical but then it became there was really a weird feeling about Woody Allen at that time without without getting into that weird that awful you know thing and gee I, I don't know I, that didn't help at all I don't know. I had a lot of hopes for that. That was that was crushing that one. That was really of all the shows that I that I loved that didn't make it. I think that's the that was the hardest to deal with for you, me. Again, you're not the writer of it. You're but they still hurt when they don't work. Don't well, that one I did write a lot of lyrics for, and you know I was I kind of because there were no living songwriters, I had to be, play the function of a composer and you know do everything, even though I'm working with old songs. How do you pick yourself up when they don't work? Because they can't all work, unfortunately, can they? Well, I tell you, one good thing was there was Aladdin was happening at the, the same season, and that 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 helped that picked me up really well because that was a show that was troubled in um, uh, uh, Toronto, and Casey Nicola just made big, brilliant, scary decisions that all paid off. I've never seen anything like it in my entire career. He came in and said, we're going to cut this this down, we're going to cut these characters down. And without going to specifics, it was really interesting. In general, shows don't change as much out of town as people think they do. But Aladdin did. He really turned it from, from uh, what might have been not a hit into like a big hit. And so that was amazing. So I did have a, I did have a success that season. So having um, another show like right after that was that was that was helpful. It was funny at one point because I didn't know when Aladdin was going to happen, and for a long time it was it had played in Seattle like three years earlier, and suddenly I, I, Casey called we're doing we're doing Aladdin, and I was like Casey I don't think I can do it I'm doing I'm with Woody Allen and Bullets Over Broadway, and he was like I have to have you you have to make it work, and I was like okay, and if, I, at one point I was almost going to turn it down I'm just I can't do it I'm just full with this other show 
but I'm forever grateful to Casey for like insisting that I do that because that was I would have had to you know move to uh, Cincinnati or something and then Civic Light Opera there I don't know that's well, really kept me alive. It sounds like Casey's leadership and some of pressure is what helped Aladdin get to where it eventually went and still is running today. Is there anything else during that very tense preview period or the out of time? You watch all these creative teams work. Mm -hmm. What's the secret sauce during that very tense time to getting a show to a comp to actually change more or change as much as it should in a preview period? Um, uh, I don't know. It's that's a hard question. Every every show is different. With Spam a lot, we were in Chicago. It was very cold. And, um, you know, Mike Nichols was directing, and he was very good about, he was sort of the opposite of Stroman. Stroman's like, let's make this work. Let's figure out a way to make this work. Mike Nichols was, cut it. Just get it out of the show. So we had a very short, so Spamalot's kind of a short show. He just didn't have patience for it. And that, in the case of Spamalot, I think that worked quite well. Um, we just cut out all the stuff <laughs> that didn't work. I think Act One was 50 minutes or something. And it was, Boy, I remember, that really shows you sometimes how you're wrong. For some reason during Spamalot, I was convinced it wasn't any good. It was just, it was a kind of a chaotic rehearsal period. And I was just convinced at the first preview that, oh, they're going to they're gonna boo us off the stage. And it was a hit from the first line. It's so interesting. I could, I could be a little negative. Right before a show's on, I'm like, this is it, it's doomed. Maybe that's why I wasn't that upset with Bullets, because I sort of always assume they're going to not do well. I never thought Producers was going to be a big hit. It's so funny, because I have the same period. I go through a period in every single one of my shows where I hate it for a day. I just can't, I can't watch it anymore. I, it's just something about being so close to it. It's also when you do a comedy, you go through, if you're going through tech rehearsals at the end, you're doing this comedy to no laughter for weeks, and it just seems like the worst show you've ever seen. Prom, a show I truly love working on, and I wish it had had a bigger success because it was terrific. And I hope it's good on Netflix where they're working on it now. But Proms, like, I thought, oh, that was death. I thought it was just going to be terrible. And then at the first preview, it was like, I, it was really kind of exciting. You know, it was just like, oh my God, this is good. We were right. This is good. But if you're playing comedy, at, at some point, everyone stops laughing during the rehearsal period and you think it's going to be a disaster. For me, anyway. All right, my last question. Oh, my, my God. My genie question. I've been talking fast. So you have enough for several. Uh, you should probably, anyone listening to this should go to that thing where they go to one and a half speed or they can slow the speed of it down. They're going to replay this one over and over. Uh, so speaking of Aladdin, yes. I'm going to ask you my genie question. Okay. Which is I want you to imagine the genie from Aladdin that you helped put song into his mouth. I can't even imagine the reworking you did on that big song. Oh, you mean uh, Fred Like Me? Yes. Uh huh. That's a like a twelve-minute extravaganza. That thing. well, that material. What a great song. Well, I like I did stuff on that. Like I thought in, in the movie it starts yeah da 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 da, and I just didn't want to start with that because I just uh, so I, I put in the scatting at the beginning and stuff, and I put ideas for the thing. I suggested. Uh, the whole uh, Dancing with the Scimitar sequence so it becomes like a game show in the middle. It was trying to find, because in the movie he's so chameleon-like and going from form to form to form, so how do you do that on stage? 
So it was like, you know, he would be a cowboy for a second, and then he would go to, you know, Dancing with the Stars, and then he would do a magic act and appear somebody else, you know. And, you know, this was, this was with Casey, of course. I'm not suggesting, you know, anything else. But it was sort of to find a musical approach that would show what the genie was like in the cartoon. When we announced we were doing the cartoon, a lot of people would be like, well, how are you going to do the genie? Like, how are you going to be that? So it's just sort of creating the events that happen dur- dur- during a song. Well, that was an amazing interpretation, because I, I assume the movie version was just letting Robin Williams improv like crazy, mm-hmm. which he did. And then, of course, they painted around him. They, oh, now we can, he mm-hmm. did this bit. We're going to do this and edit this and edit this. And that's what you created on that stage down there around that actor as well. Well, well it's, it's really Casey's magic to put everything. A lot of times I would say, this would be great if it was a tap dance. And he would say, no, but we, he would use the music and make it something much better than that. And that that, that show to me is a monument to the, 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 the genius of Casey Nicola, I have to say. He just did an amazing job with that. It was, you know, I think, I think it's a wonderful show. Personally. So imagine this genie comes to thank you for doing such a great job with his number, winning him a Tony Award, actually. Oh, he was so good. He was so amazing. That was so fun. At the first day, we, he did the show in Seattle, which was like uh, like two or three years before he came to Broadway. He was, we were at a rehearsal, and he just said his first line, and it was so thrilling. And one other time that happened, I was with Nathan Lane. First time he ever did the producers. He's in my apartment. And, he, and he's we're running the opening song, King of Broadway, and he says, "Hi, Max Bialystok." It was immediately so perfect. It was really a chilling experience because, from the beginning, it was astonishing what he was doing, and it was just so perfect. You know, it was just a magical thing. So the genie wants to thank you for everything you did for him by oh. granting you one wish. Uh huh. What's the one thing about Broadway that drives you? Nuts! Oh, it makes you crazy, angry. Wants you to jump up and down and scream and yell. If only they would just change this about Broadway and be a better place. What oh, would you ask this. I don't think I'm going to come up with a good answer for this. What does what does bother me about Broadway? There are no wrong answers. There are no wrong answers. Well, that changes everything. Um, Ken, I don't know. How do I answer that question? Um. Uh, what do I not like about Broadway? I don't. Everything I'm I, I'm thinking is like cliche, like ticket prices, or I hate it when people are on their phone and they're met. So I don't know. I pretty much really like Broadway with all its flaws. I suppose I would like more new shows with more mel- melodic scores. Uh, you think melody's missing? A little bit, but there is a thing, and you will learn this as you grow older. Uh, you, uh, is that you, you become sort of like, oh, these kids, we had melody when I was... So I don't know that that's valid. You know, I used to listen to rock music that I loved and people were complaining how it didn't have melody. So if I hear a modern song, uh, a lot of times, like, young people just love the thing. You know, like a Jason Robert Brown song is loved by kids and I've never quite warmed up to them, although it's obviously he's a crazy genius. So I don't know. When I don't like stuff, I assume it's just I'm... I'm a cranky old man who, who who prefers, you know, just to be listening to old Gershwin songs or something. Well, then call me a cranky old man as well, because I wish we had a little more melody in a lot of our scores as well. Thank you so much for that answer. Thank you for all that you do for the theater. And thank you for listening today. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Producers Perspective Podcast. We'll see you then. Thanks again to Mr. Glenn Kelly for sharing all his secrets with us today. 
Look, the holidays are coming up, and if you are looking for the perfect gift for the Broadway fan in your life, or just frankly, a gift for yourself, that's right, go ahead to Amazon.com, put this on your wish list right now, tell all your friends to get you Be a Broadway Star, the board game, Broadway's only board game, and about this time of year, it's like the best-selling gift you can get on Amazon if you are a theater fan. If you're excited about our new podcast season, if you're enjoying Glenn Kelly and all the other great guests we've had so far this season, please do us a favor, review us on Apple Podcasts. Just helps other theater fans find us. To find more about me, follow me on Instagram at Ken Davenport Bway, or do go to my blog, theproducersperspective.com. Sign up, subscribe. You'll be the first to know when new podcast episodes are released. And I also talk about everything else I'm working on, including the shows I have coming up. So go to theproducersperspective.com to subscribe and check that out. And now, that's right, it's time for the Songwriter of the Week. Hashtag Songwriter of the Week. This week, it's Angela Sclafani. And today we're playing a song called I'll Save You the Waltz. It's from Angela's brand new musical, The Other Side of Paradise. That's a very good title there, The Other Side of Paradise. If you like what you hear and want to learn more, check out Angela's website at Angela Sclafani, that's Angela, S-C-L-A-F-A-N-I.com, or at Angela Sclafani on Instagram. Go check her out, spread the word, let's get some emerging writers some attention. They're working their butts off, they're working their pianos off. Listen to their stuff and spread the word. Thanks so much, and here's that new song. You say, oh, you say, oh, that it was all for me. I pray, oh, I pray, oh, that all our friends are wrong. And when the liquor dries and the jazz dies, I'll save you. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.